Thank you, Garrett. What a blessing. Wasn't that big God theology? I, I really like how uh, Pastor Garrett expressed that because that's the heart of what's going on in the passage that we're going to look at together this morning out of Philippians chapter 1. What happens when a big God does something that doesn't make sense at the moment? How do I navigate that as I steward my life? We're about to head into two weeks together where Pastor Brian is going to lead our entire congregation in the consideration of something that is very dear and very near to the heart of God. And that is the gospel that he intends to advance for the sake of the name. And the name that is being advanced is the name of the one who saved us. And the big God who is about that name and who is doing all things to elevate that name and to advance that name through the gospel sometimes does it in ways that don't really make sense to us. And if we don't have a big God theology going on in our hearts and our lives, we're going to find ourselves where the people that we're reading about in the book of Philippians are. And that is, they had heard about what had been going on in the life of the Apostle Paul. If you look at the very end of the passage that we read uh, in verse 30, Paul says to them, you are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Something has been going on in Paul's life. And you remember what it was. The apostle Paul had come to the city of Philippi. Philippi is an amazing city. It was a Roman colony that it was sort of a major outpost of Rome that stood at the entrance at the gateway to all of Greece. It was very, very close to the hometown where Alexander the Great had been born and raised. So this city had come about as a Roman outpost, and this Roman outpost had been filled with military, Roman military personnel who had retired from the army and had been given property in Philippi as a reward. So when you go there and you walk around the ruins of Philippi today, you find something very unusual. Everywhere else you go in Greece, and you look at the ruins, and you see what's there, all of what you see that remains sort of carved into the buildings or into the statuary is all in Greek. But when you go to Philippi, everything is in Latin, because it was a Roman outpost. And so these people had some important beliefs. And one of the important beliefs was that they represented everything that Rome was to the entire country of Greece. If you wanted to find out what Rome was like, you didn't have to go to Rome. All you had to do was get to Philippi. If you could just get to Philippi, you would have an incredible sense, an incredible understanding of what you would find if you went to Rome. And so it's no surprise to you that if you lived in the city of Philippi, you believed certain things about the emperor. And there were two important things you believed about the Roman emperor. And by the way, the emperor at that time, when Paul was writing Philippians, was a man named Nero. And if you lived in Philippi, this is what you believed. You believed 
that the entire Roman Empire had a lord, a curios. And the lord of the entire Roman Empire was the emperor. You also believed that that lord, that emperor, was the savior of the Roman Empire. So when you went to Philippi and you heard people talking about a lord and a savior, they were not talking in the way that you and I talk today. They were talking about an individual who stood at the head of the Roman Empire and everybody in Philippi, if you said to them, who is the Lord and who is the Savior of Rome, they would immediately say the emperor. And at, and at this point in our history, his name is Nero. And one day, a little group of travelers came into that city and they began talking about a different Lord who brought a different salvation. And as they began to talk about this Lord and this Savior, it became very clear that they believed that he was a better Lord and a better Savior than Nero, that his authority and his power was better than the authority and the power of Nero. And God began to immediately validate that message. Because as you go to Acts 16 and you start tracing these men as they began preaching this message of a better Lord and a better Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, God began to do powerful miracles to show that these men were actually telling the truth. And one of the miracles that immediately happened was the spectacular delivery of a young slave girl who had been brutalized and traumatized by her owners. And she was released of the most unbelievable, indescribable bondage, literally a demonic bondage. And God delivered her through these messengers who had come to Philippi, this Roman colony, to talk about a better Savior and a better Lord. Well, you can imagine how that went. Immediately, as this word began to go out in this Roman colony full of ex-military officials who were loyal to Nero, you can imagine how the news of a better Lord and a better Savior than the one they had served for their entire adult life and their entire military career went over. And so these men, Paul and Silas, found themselves in the city jail. And you know the story. At midnight, they began singing the praises of this better Lord and this better Savior. And God shook the entire city and delivered those men from the bondage of that Philippian jail. And by the time the night was over, their jailer had been delivered by the, from the bondage of his own sin, he and his own house. And so as you start tracing the story in Acts, you can see that the message that these men brought that Jesus was a better Savior and a better Lord was actually validated by what God was doing through the messengers to bring people into freedom out of bondage. And by the time it's all said and done, it wasn't just the jailer and his family. There were many people in the city of Philippi who had turned to Christ, repented of their sins, and put their faith and trust in this Lord and in this Savior and a church was born. But almost three years have passed. And these people that had witnessed all of that had experienced some things 
that were disheartening to them. And they had heard some things about the Apostle Paul that were discouraging to them. They were disheartened because they themselves were now beginning to encounter the same kind of opposition and the same kind of persecution that was going on when Paul came. Now that had turned in their direction. I remember one of the first times I went to the city of Philippi, to the ruins. I led a study tour uh, through that part of the world, and we had a whole group of people there, and we went to the Colosseum, the small arena that was in the city. The Roman Colosseum in Rome had a smaller replica in the city of Philippi. And I stood next to our guide, and we were sort of down uh, at the ground level, and uh, probably where that wire is was the first row of seats in that Colosseum. So you imagine, it's, it's a circular place. We're down. Our group is sitting all the way up there, and the guide is explaining what we're looking at and where we are. And while he's explaining, I'm looking around, and I look up, and I had this question. Why are these seats so high up? And so I waited, you know, and, and the guides were always very gracious. He would always say things like, all right, any questions? And when the group had asked all their questions, I said, well, I have a question. And I, I asked him, Beth and I, I think we're there together. I asked him, so why are the seats up that high? And he looked at me and he said, Pastor Sam, because of the wild animals. And it struck me that I was standing on the floor of an arena that had once been covered with sand, and there were probably Christian believers among the people that we're reading about who were on that sand in that arena facing those wild beasts. And the book of Philippians took an entirely different feel for me. These people were now experiencing what they had witnessed in the life of Paul except they weren't being delivered. And moreover, they were wondering if the deliverance, that miraculous deliverance from the jail cell of Philippi that wasn't happening to them was just a one-time fluke because they had heard that Paul himself had been arrested again and now he was in prison at Rome waiting trial for the charge of sedition and possibly his own execution. And Paul actually refers to that later on in chapter 1. And so here you have this group of believers who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, who have believed in a better Lord and in a better Savior. And God, who is advancing that name, has brought things into their life that are unexpected, unanticipated, and difficult. And that's the story that is going to be told over and over and over in the history of God's church, and there are going to come moments in your life and in my life where that story becomes very personal to us. And so the question I have for my own heart this morning and the question I have for all of us is what do we do when gospel strategy that is designed by God takes us to a dark place or a hard space and we don't sense the deliverance that we read about in the scripture. How do we steward our life? How do we steward our resources? We're about to go into a season where we're going to talk about life stewardship. 
for the sake of the gospel. How does that work? And so I want us to look at four things that happen when God entrusts us with the stewardship of our life. I want us to see four ways in which that happens. If we're going to navigate Philippians, then then we're going to need to navigate it the way Paul wrote it. So let's do it this way. Let's begin by noting that if we are going to carry out the trust that God has given us with good stewardship of our life, here's where it begins. It begins by cultivating relationships that are centered on the fellowship of the gospel. Here's where it starts. We'll never navigate whatever God brings in our life if we don't understand the nature of the relationship that we have with Christ and with one another as a gospel-centered relationship. So let's read this text together, verse uh, 3 through 8. Paul begins by saying, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer, making my prayer with joy. And then here's verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Some of you will have the word fellowship there in the text that you might be reading. Paul is going to describe the relationship that he has with these dear people at Philippi that he led to Christ as a gospel partnership. When you lived in the ancient world, the concept of friendship was very different than maybe the way you and I think of friendship today. And it's even more from the way we used to think about friendship to the way that we think of friending or unfriending people in our life today. So if we're going to understand what Paul is doing here, we've got to go back into that ancient concept and understand what friendship is all about. If you lived in Paul's day, friendship happened between two parties that agreed together on a, on a particular objective. And as they came together around this objective, there were certain expectations that they had toward one another. If you entered into a friendship with someone in the ancient world, that friendship had a purpose. And whatever the purpose was, both of you that were in that friendship or both parties that were in that friendship had certain mutual expectations. For example, you could expect the party in your friendship to be virtuous. You could expect the party in your friendship with regard to that objective and with regard to you to act for the well-being of the point that you are, are working toward. You could expect personal loyalty. You could expect sacrificial reciprocity, the giving and the receiving of things necessary uh, in that friendship. You could, you could expect that person to stand with you to overcome obstacles that were in the way of the thing that you were working toward together in your friendship. You could expect that person or that party to stand with you against enemies that would come to try to stand in the way. And so it, there would, in, in this concept of friendship, both parties had common enemies. You couldn't just stand back and say, well, I'm disengaged and I'm your friend, but I'm not involved. This was a very dynamic concept. And at the heart of it was a common objective. The word that you and I would use for this is the word partnership. And six times in this book, Paul's going to use that phrase 
to talk about the relationship that he has with these believers. It was a gospel partnership. It was centered on the gospel. You can see that in verse 5. It was divine in origin. Where did it start? Paul said this, I'm sure of this. Paul said, I know exactly where it started. I know exactly how this partnership developed. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. And we typically think of the good work that Paul is talking about as being our sanctification. God saved us and he started this process of sanctification and he's going to carry it to completion until the day we stand before him. And all of us would say what to that? All of us would say, amen. Thank you, God. And so the scripture teaches that, but that's not the point of this verse. The good thing that Paul is talking about that God began and that God is going to sustain is this gospel partnership that is is at the moment looking like it is difficult. It's empowered and sustained by God. Paul said, I am sure that the one who began this good work in you, this partnership that we have together, will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. I know some of you are in jail. I remember that jail. I know some of you are being dragged into the arena. I remember that arena. But I also know something, and I want you to know something, that the God who began this gospel partnership, the God who has orchestrated all that is going on in the partnership, is going to energize and sustain the partnership until the day of Christ. And then I want you to know something else about this partnership. It was flavored by genuine love and deep affection. Look at verse 8. Paul said, God is my witness. Because when you talk about partnerships like this, it's almost like you could just be talking about a business deal that two people who really don't care about each other have set aside their differences and they're just working together for some common goal. That's how partnerships And friendships worked in the ancient world. But Paul is saying something more about this partnership. He is saying this partnership actually is flavored by deep affection and genuine love. And God is my witness to that. See how he says this? God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about how it was possible for a former rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, who was raised up in strict Orthodox Judaism that had very defined views about why God created Gentiles. If, if you grew up in the kind of community that Paul did, you had certain beliefs about the Gentiles. There are actually rabbinic writings that uh, record prayers that were prayed by certain rabbis, and the content of the prayer would be simply, God, I'm so thankful that you made me a Jew and not a Gentile. There were actually certain rabbis, more extreme, who believed the reason that God had created so many Gentiles is because he needed fuel for hell's eternal fires. So here's my question. How is it that a Jewish rabbi, a former rabbi, and a community full of Gentile idolaters could come together and have this intense, deep 
yearning and affection. There's only one thing big enough to do that, and it's the gospel. It's the gospel. You know, if we had time and we just could sit here for half a week and just let everybody tell their story and let everybody give their background, you would be shocked. I would be shocked at the immense diversity that God has brought to this church. There's only one thing big enough to bring us all together and give us the kind of affection that we have in our hearts, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel is being displayed individually, but it's also here in this text being displayed corporately. Paul says this in verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul's saying, listen, listen, as a church, this partnership that we have, it's a dynamic partnership, and I'm not the only one that's suffering. You are also suffering. You are engaged in the same kind of experiences that God is bringing into my life as a gospel risk taker, those very same experiences are coming into your life. And those experiences are designed by God to advance the gospel that brought us all together. Look at verse 7 again. You are partakers in this experience that we both have. And what is the experience? Imprisonment. So that the gospel will be defended and confirmed. In other words, Paul says, the same suffering that you see in me, you are experiencing yourself. And so that brings us to this first application this morning as we think about Go Week, the next two weekends together, as we think about what's been going on in our own lives over the last two weeks. What is God up to? What gospel work is God doing in the partnerships that he's forming in your life. Some of the greatest gospel partners I have were formed in the suffering that comes in the life that we do together as a church. I have probably five or six names written down here that that I'm just not going to say because they're very, very key and, and wonderful and private partnerships in my life, that for, in some cases, years, God has used in my life to spur me on to do gospel work. And some of those partnerships were forged in some of the deepest suffering that God could bring into a life. Here's what I want you to think about. We have been through some suffering here in the last two weeks. We're about to go into two weeks where God's going to stir us to do gospel work. What partnerships in this body does God want to form? Can you move past the idea that the people in your life are just there to make you feel good and to just hang out with? And, of course, we all have those people in our life, and I'm not certainly saying we shouldn't, but have you ever stopped to think that some of those partnerships God may be forging so that they are lifelong gospel relationships? gospel partnerships. Which brings us to the second thing. If I'm going to steward my life well, I need to build relationships that are centered on the partnership of the gospel. 
But for those partnerships to move the gospel forward, then my life needs to be transformed by the gospel that I'm preaching. And that's the second thing that we see here, displaying our lives in a way that shows the transforming power of the gospel that we're, we're, we're carrying. And if I have a partnership with you, so let's just use us together. You and I, as a church, have a partnership. You and the pastors have a partnership. The pastors together have a partnership. And that partnership is gospel-centered. But if that partnership is really going to advance the gospel forward, if you're a college student and you go to our college ministry, or if, if you're in our young marriage class, or wherever it is in the part of this body, maybe it's your community group, maybe it's during the equip hour and you're part of a group of people that are just being energized by a particular topic that you're studying together in our equip hour. Can you imagine what God is doing in forming gospel partnerships And for all of that to go forward, there has to be one massive reality. Your life has to be being transformed by the gospel that God is forming a partnership to proclaim. And you can see this really in the prayer that Paul prays in verses 9 through 11. He prays, for example, that they would grow and abound in their love for God and for each other. You can see that in verse 9. It is my prayer that your love abound more and more. We, when we first come to Christ, we love him, the Bible says, because he first loved us. There is this instinctive understanding that as we enter into our salvation, we are entering into that salvation because of the love of God. For God so loved the world. We love him. Because he first loved us. God displayed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, all throughout the scriptures, it is crystal clear that the reason we have our salvation is because God loved us. And that love elicits a love back. And Paul says, I want that love that God's love began in you, that love that responds to divine love, I want that love to grow more and more. So let me give you an illustration that I think might help. Um, Beth and I this year are going to uh, celebrate our 36th wedding anniversary. Not quite where Wayne and Janice are this morning, uh, but we're on our way. We're catching them. And uh, so can you imagine if uh, you attended our wedding. We have the, I have a wedding picture, uh, a picture of Beth and me on our wedding day, and it's sort of in our, our bedroom. And I look at it, and I'm like, I can't believe I wore those glasses. It's terrible. It's embarrassing. Uh, so can you, but, but let's say you were there, and uh, you caught me after uh, the wedding ceremony, and you said, uh, hey, Pastor Sam, I have a question for you. Do you, how much do you love Beth? And I would say to you, what are you talking about? I just married her. I just said vows. I just stood before God and man. Of course I love her. Well, how much do you love her? I love her with all of my what? Heart. And you know what? I would mean every word of it. If you could go back 36 years in time and catch me coming down the steps out of that church, and say, Pastor Sam, do you love Beth? I would say, 
I love her with all of my heart. And I did. I loved her with every bit of my heart. But if you caught me today out in the parking lot and you said to me, Pastor Sam, do you love Beth? I would say, oh, I love her with all of my heart. And I would look back on the love that I had for her 36 years ago, and that love would sort of look like first grade love. Remember first grade love? Or teenage love? Or the first time? You know what's happened to me? It's not like I didn't really love her with all of my heart here. I did. What's happened is God has grown my capacity to love. God has grown my ability to love her as I have grown with her and I, as I've watched God's work through her and, and, and just I'm amazed at what God has done. And I think every husband here could say that about their wife and every wife here could say that about their husband, hopefully. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, look, every year your love for God, your capacity to love God should be growing. Your capacity to understand insight and spiritual wisdom and discernment should be displaying itself in your life so that you are approving what is excellent and you are living morally and ethically in a way that reflects the power of the gospel to bring a person into the presence of God in a righteousness that is not their own. And Paul says, I'm praying that God would fill up your life with that fruit. What fruit are you talking about? Look at verse 11. That you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And the kind of righteousness that Paul is interested in is not a righteousness that you just sort of do on your own. It's not a list of things that you write down and that you sort of legalistically go at and try to figure out how to do. This is, this is not Paul saying, all right, here's a whole bunch of things that you better focus on, and if you're not doing these things, then there's something wrong with your righteousness. He's not talking about your righteousness at all here. He's talking about a very different righteousness. He's talking about the righteousness that you received when you became a Christian. And that righteousness has fruit. Fruit is the product of of the righteousness that Jesus put into your life when he obeyed the law and when he paid your penalty. And that righteousness that now covers you, that righteousness that is fully yours, can never be touched by your unrighteousness. I want to say that again because I want you to think about this. The righteousness that Paul's talking about here that belongs to you never was your righteousness. It was never my righteousness. It was always the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ imputed all of that righteousness to me, none of my unrighteousness can affect that righteousness. That doesn't mean my unrighteousness can just exist. It just means that it never touches the righteousness that I have because of the active obedience of Jesus Christ when he fulfilled all of the expectations of the law for me. And the beauty of that is this. When my flesh 
engages in unrighteousness, it doesn't affect my standing at all before God. It doesn't touch my righteousness. Therefore, I don't have to fear. And I can run to God and repair that relationship. And all of a sudden, this partnership that we're talking about that is based on that kind of righteousness is immense. And that brings us to the third thing, and that is this. If I'm going to engage in this partnership and steward my life well, I have to realize that my relationships are actually gospel partnerships. And those partnerships are about a gospel that really transforms us because of the righteousness that it brings into our life, a righteousness that isn't ours to start with. And the righteousness that Jesus Christ imputed to us is bearing fruit in our life. And that righteousness helps me to embrace the values and the priorities that are established by the gospel. Look at verse 12. Paul said this, now I want you to know something. I want you to know that the circumstances that have happened to me have really served to advance the gospel. Paul said this, look, you and I have a gospel partnership. Our friendship is a gospel friendship. And what's so unusual about this gospel friendship is that in this friendship, the one whose name we worship has given to us his very own righteousness, and that righteousness has been filling up our life with his righteousness. And as we live and have our being in a broken world, and we announce how this gospel that is transforming us can liberate others, God is going to bring circumstances into our life that don't make sense. So think about it this way. The number one gospel preacher in, in the entire New Testament is the Apostle Paul. Everywhere this man goes and opens his mouth and begins talking about the gospel, amazing things happen. And all of a sudden, this guy is benched. I mean, it's like you are in the big game. You are in that final part of the season, and this is the defining game, and and all of a sudden, the coach pulls the best player on your team, who every time he's out there, he just scores, and he sits him on the bench, and he's sitting there on the bench, and you're going, what's going on? And the whole stands are chattering. He's not, he hasn't fouled out. He is, uh, he's not injured, but the coach has got him on the bench. And you can just almost hear the conversation in the stands. What is going on? How This doesn't make any sense. We need him back in the game. This is exactly what's going on in Philippi. It's like God has taken the Apostle Paul, the greatest preacher of the gospel, and put him in a Roman cell. It makes zero sense. This is like, what? And Paul says, no, 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 no. This is brilliant. This is the most strategic thing God could have done for the gospel's sake. Because here's what's been going on in my Roman cell. I've had the opportunity to share the gospel in such a way that the Praetorian Guard, the Praetorian Guard was the elite guard in the Roman military system that guarded the emperor. There were 9,000 of them. And Paul says, because God benched me and put me in a prison cell, those guys have all heard the gospel and they know why I'm here. 
They all know that I'm here in Rome, in this cell, for the sake of Christ. And by the time we get to the end of the book, Paul says, hey, by the way, there are many in Caesar's household who greet you who have come to faith. I mean, can you imagine? Paul goes to prison, and the Roman guards guarding him want to know why he's there. So why are you in here? Why are you chained? Paul says, oh, let me tell you. And he starts sharing the gospel. And they've never heard this before. And they can't get over what they're seeing in the life of this prisoner that is so radically different from all of the other prisoners that they have to guard. And Paul says, many of them, many of Caesar's household have come to Christ. Can you imagine the impact of this on the Roman Empire? Can you imagine the impact of this on Rome? Can you imagine the impact? What looks like God bench the best player is actually the most strategic and brilliant move that you can think of because Caesar's own house has been impacted by this. And that brings us to the final thing this morning, and that is this. If we really believe what Paul is saying here, are we willing to deploy our life and use our resources? the way God used Paul's for the advancement of the gospel. If that's true, we will gladly use our life just as Jesus used his life. When God wanted to bring salvation to me and to you, he sent his son and graced him with suffering. And when he wants that gospel to go to others, He is going to take gospel risk takers and put them in a partnership with Jesus. Paul is saying this to these Philippians. You're not just in a partnership with me. It's not just that you and I have a gospel partnership. We have a gospel partnership with Jesus. And Jesus is investing our life. And he's deploying our life. And for some of us, it will be a hard place and perhaps a dark space, because that is where there is a gospel need. And God says to you, you know what? We're in this partnership. You and I together, I sent my son to suffer so you could receive the gospel. Are you willing for me to send you to a dark place or to a hard space? Are you willing to suffer so that the gospel that reached you could reach somebody else? That's not a light question but it's a question we need to ask ourselves. Because if I'm not willing to use my life that way, then I'm never going to use my resources that way. Until God has the right, gladly and willingly for me, to put my life in hard places and in dark spaces, if he deems that is the most strategic way to advance the gospel that we're in a partnership to proclaim... Unless God can do that with my life and I can receive that willingly and gladly and be sustained like Paul was sustained, I am never going to use my resources. You know what's going to happen to me? I'm going to be happy with $3 worth of God. I want just enough God to get me out of hell. I want just enough God to make sure that if I need him, he's there. I, I want just enough God to make sure that my little life goes well. I want just enough God so that he can flavor my kingdom so that my kingdom looks like God's kingdom 
and operates like God's kingdom, but it's all about me and it's all about my stuff. And I'm willing to give God a little bit of that sort of to make sure the rest of it goes well. I just want $3 worth of God. And Paul says, that's not how gospel partnership works. When you are in a gospel partnership with the Son of God, the same thing that happened to him is going to happen to some of you. That's what Paul is saying in a smaller way. The same thing he says to the Philippians that you saw in me is now happening to you. When I came to Philippi, I landed in a prison cell. So did you. I was dragged into that same arena. So are some of you. Jesus is saying to us in a much bigger way, the same thing that happened to me when I came to bring you salvation is going to happen to some of you when I give you the opportunity to take that salvation to somewhere else or someone else. Are you willing to do this? There's a story that has impacted me for many years now. It's a story that many of you are familiar with if you know missions much. It's a story of a man named John Patton. John Patton was a missionary in uh, the early 1800s, actually 1840s. And he went to a part of the world at that time that was totally unreached. This is before you had uh, airplanes and travel was all by ship. And it was very difficult to get there. It was very remote. He went to what was called the South Sea Islands. Those islands were newly discovered or relatively newly discovered, and they were filled with indigenous people, and many of those people were cannibals. And in 1848, John Patton was preaching a sermon at church just before he was going to go to to those islands, and somebody came to him after the service, an elderly deacon in one of those churches came to him and said to him, Mr. Patton, are you not worried that if you go there, you will be eaten by cannibals? And John Patton said this, the man's name was Dickinson. He said, Mr. Dickinson, you are advanced in years now, and your prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. You know, Patton was right about that. It mattered very little to him what happened to his earthly body or to his earthly resources but it mattered immensely to the indigenous people he went to reach. 30 years later, at the end of his life, he had worn out his body and he exhausted his resources, but over 100,000 indigenous people had heard the gospel. There were 35 converts on the island of Anetium. There were 13,000 converts on the island of Fiji. There were 34,000 converts on the island of Samoa, and there were 12,000 converts on the islands of the New Hebrides. This is an amazing investment. Let me ask you a question. Are you willing, as a gospel partner, to let the most brilliant strategist take your life and say, I want to put it here, I want to put it there, Maybe it's going to be at a prison cell in Philippi. Maybe it's going to be a prison cell at Rome. Maybe it's going to be laying your head down on an execution stone. 
to give your life for this gospel. Maybe it's going to be a bed of sickness. Maybe it's going to be ministering in a hard place with very little visible fruit. Are you willing to let the master strategist take your life and your resources in this gospel partnership and use them to advance the name that you have come to love? That's a question I think we're going to have to answer in the next two weeks in very, very poignant and personal ways. So let's pray together that God would prepare us for that. Shall we, Lord, we come before you. We ask for help. We thank you that we have such an example of life stewardship here in this familiar passage. Lord, help us to see our life as a gospel partnership with you. Lord, help the gospel that we've embraced, that we now proclaim to be transforming us. Lord, may the gospel that is changing us be a gospel worthy of the use of all of our life and all of our resources. May we embrace the circumstances that you bring into our life as the very best place for gospel work to be done in us and through us. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.